book of Ecclesiastes. We will have four chapters left in Ecclesiastes after this morning. And so far in the book, the author of Ecclesiastes, who refers to himself as the preacher, he's looked at many different aspects of life. He's looked at life in a fallen and a broken world and the conclusion that he has come to is something that we have all, I believe, lived long enough to experience and to know and that is that life in this world is broken and many aspects of it are hard to understand. We've all experienced hardships and trials for which we have no answers. And we have observed life that perplexes us. Just this past week, I'm sure, like me, you heard about a man on our island who unfortunately responded to his difficult life by ending his life. And just a few months prior, we heard of a similar man who responded in a similar way. Well, Ecclesiastes brings us face to face with these realities, this brokenness, the problems of life that cause some people to lose hope and to give up. But that's not all that Ecclesiastes does. Ecclesiastes is a wisdom book. So its primary function is to teach us wisdom for living life in a fallen broken world that is confusing at times and for which we have no answers for the things we see and for the things that we experience. And I believe this morning that all around this room, all over this room, every single one of us deeply desires to live life well. Even though we may not express that, even though we may not say that, Every single one of us wants to live life, no matter how difficult it is. We want to live it well. I don't think there's anyone who wants to end his or her life and have regret about how life was lived. And if we hear and heed the words of the preacher in Ecclesiastes 8 in particular, since that's what we focused on this morning, I believe that we will not regret how we have lived our lives at the end of our lives. So, if you have not yet done so, please turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 8, and we begin reading this morning at verse 1. We will conclude at verse 17, instead of, at verse 15, sorry, instead of verse 17, as noted in your bulletin. Next week, the Lord willing, we will pick up at verse 16. But this morning, we conclude at verse 15. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, chapter 8, starting at verse 1. Who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. 
For the word of the king is supreme. And who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever, sees, whoever keeps the command will know no evil thing. And the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything. Although man's troubles lie heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be. For who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war. Nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun. When man had power over man to his hurt. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow. Because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth. That there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And Lord, your word that has been preserved for us is an expression of your care. It is a reminder to us that you have not left us to ourselves as we live life in a world that has fallen and broken and where there are many contradictions. There are things that perplex us. There are things that trouble us. But Lord, you have given us your word and in particular, you have given us the wisdom that is found in Ecclesiastes to help us to navigate this life, to live it well, even though we may not understand everything that we confront in this fallen world. I pray that you would speak to our hearts. And Lord, you know the different ways in which we need to hear your word this morning from this passage of Scripture before us. And so I ask, Lord, that by the power of your Spirit that you would 
apply your word to our hearts. I pray that you would quicken truth to our minds. And I ask, Lord, that you would grant me much grace to be faithful to proclaim your word and care for these who have gathered this morning. Would you speak to our hearts, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. So how do we live life well in a world that is broken and for which we have no answers for many of the things that we face? Well, the very simple answer is it requires wisdom. It requires wisdom for us to be able to live life in this fallen world and to live it well. And it's interesting that the preacher begins by talking about wisdom because time and time again through the the book up to this point, he has reminded us that wisdom is good, but wisdom has limitations. We saw last week how the preacher sought to understand things in the past and he said that they were deep, deep, very deep, and he just could not fathom them. Wisdom can only take us so far. Yet, in this section, the preacher commends wisdom to us as the means for living life well. And when we consider what the preacher says in this section of scripture that we have just read, in light of what he has said up to this point, here's what the preacher is saying to us. This is the point that he seems to be making. Despite its limitations, wisdom enables us to live life well. Despite its limitations, and not answering all the questions that we will face in life, wisdom enables us to live life well. In this passage before us, the preacher uses his own wisdom to teach us three particular ways in which life can be lived well, and in our remaining time, I want us to consider them. The first way is found in verses 2 through 9, and it is this, obey authority. You want to live life well? You want to live life well in this fallen, broken world? The preacher says, Obey authority. But notice how he begins. He begins in verse 1 by commending wisdom. He asks this question, Who is like the wise? Who is like the wise? The preacher is addressing his original audience. And he's asking them this question, Who is like the wise? Who, who knows the interpretation of a thing. And then he answers and he says, A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. The preacher seems to be pointing out that wisdom is rare. It's kind of like walking in a room and saying, Okay, who, who is wise? Who knows the answer to this? And very few would offer themselves as being wise. And he commands wisdom by saying, that a man's wisdom will make the the hardness of his face shine. It's kind of like a person who's perplexed about something, confused and doesn't know what to do. Well, the preacher says, when wisdom comes, it will make your face shine. It will lighten the load. It will brighten your 
appearance. And what the preacher is saying is that the wise obey authority, they obey the king. In the days of the preacher, it's very different from what we know today. The authority in that day was autocratic. It was a king. It was not a democracy. You didn't vote for the king. You didn't vote against the king. Your only involvement was to obey the king. And the preacher is saying, keep to his original audience, keep the king's command. And the first reason that the preacher gives to keep the king's command is a divine reason. He says, obey the king because of God's oath to him. This would have been at a time when the king of Israel was God's representative, when he would have been appointed and delegated as God's divine authority for the nation. And there were special promises that were given to him as God's anointed king. And so the clear point that the preacher is making is that the king is to be obeyed because he is in a position of authority. He is God's authority. And the second reason that the preacher gives to obey the king is that the king could hurt you. He counsels against any attitude or action in opposition to the king. Notice what he says. This, this statement, be not hasty to go from the presence of the king. It speaks about disloyalty. It speaks about a person being an eye servant, really not valuing the king and respecting the king and wants to get out of the king's sight so that he can do whatever he wants to do. Can't wait to leave the king's sight because he wants to do his own thing. And the counsel is, don't be hasty to leave the king's presence. And the reason is that an attitude of rebellion will eventually manifest in some action that will put you in trouble with the king. So notice his further warning in verses 3 and 4. Do not take your stand in any evil cause for he does what he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who can say to him, what are you doing? So what the, what the preacher is, is commending, he's, he's commending, he's commending wisdom, he's commending relating to the king, relating to authority in a very wise way. Look at verse 5. He says, whoever, whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. The point that the preacher is making is that even when dealing with a king whose authority is consolidated, whose authority cannot be questioned, the wise person can be preserved from a king's wrath by simply obeying the commands. The preacher is also making the point that the wise person knows how to behave. He says it in verse 5, Wisdom teaches the wise person what to do the just way and when to do it the proper time. And this is true, despite the fact that the wise man, like everyone else, faces troubles, he faces hardships. Notice he says, 
in verse 5, For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. He's saying even though you face difficulties and you face trials and all the stresses of life and all the other things that are going on, the wise person knows the just way. The wise person knows the proper time. Wisdom will teach and show you how to act and when to act. And one of the issues that we see that the, the preacher is, is raising that can bring some of these troubles and stresses and difficulties that we face is that we, we have uncertainty. We don't know the future. We don't know what is to be. And there's no one to tell us what it will be and how it will be. He reminds us we don't have power over our spirit. In other words, we we, we can't preserve our lives. We can't stop ourselves from dying. We don't know the day of our death. All these are issues that are are well beyond our control. And you know, many times we make decisions and we do things trying to preserve our lives, trying to protect ourselves. And we run afoul of what is the right thing to do. We run afoul of the authority. And so the preachers instead recommending wisdom, recommending obedience to the authority of the king. He tells us in verse in verse eight it's pretty dark up here now that no man has power to retain his spirit or power over the day of death. There's no discharge from war. You can't say, I'm not going to war. Those things are are beyond and out of your control. And he says, wickedness will not deliver those who practice it. Notice what he says in verse 9. He says, I've observed all of this while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun when man had power over man to his hurt. If that's too... If that's not good. You can certainly turn it off. I, I just had a difficulty a short while ago. I should be fine. So the, the, the preacher is speaking in a day when the king wielded absolute power and authority and his counselors live wisely, obey authority. Even when life is hard, even when life is difficult, wisdom will teach you what to do and how to act, and how you to respond. But we don't live in a country like the one that the king describes. We don't have a king. We have a prime minister, but he is not supreme. In our context, the Constitution is supreme, and our Constitution gives us rights and gives us protections against the prime minister and against the government. But the words of the preacher, as they relate to how we relate to authority so that we may live well, those words are relevant to us this morning. They apply to every single one of us this morning, and we may want to consider it more broadly to say, obey authority. Or, to put it another way, submit to authority. And that refers to all authority, whether it's government, whether it's a boss, whether it's a teacher or parents or police officers, all persons who are in authority. 
this is how we live life well. This is how we live wisely in a world that has fallen and broken. Now, I, I, I won't make a case for why the preacher started at this particular point. But here's what I would say. This is God's inspired word to us. And this is where the preacher starts when he is saying, who is wise? Who is the wise one? Well, see, the wise ones will obey authority. So this has to be critical as we navigate life, as we go through the world, that we have an attitude if we're going to be wise, to understand that it is important to obey authority, to submit to authority, if we are going to live life well. And brothers and sisters, it is not as important for us to know why Scripture says this, as much as the fact that Scripture says this. And therefore, we need to embrace it as an expression of living life well, listen to the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 13, verses 1 through 5. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you are wrong, if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. The wise will obey and submit to authority, even under difficult circumstances. They will know how and when to act. And so since we all desire to live well, live this life well, we need to consider our attitude towards authority. Do you rebel against authority? Do you disrespect authority? Is your attitude towards authority to try to see what you can get away with? How much you can get away with? How far you're able to go? And again, this includes any authority. Children who are present this morning, Recognize that your main authority in your life at this time is your parents. And the question is, how do you view their authority? How do you see them? Do you see them as the authority figures that God has placed in your life for your good? And if not, you should, because that's what Scripture teaches. The authority that your parents have is a delegated authority from God. There's no authority except God's authority. So anyone who has authority has delegated authority. And therefore, you're not really dealing with your parents' authority. You're ultimately dealing with God and His authority. 
So you shouldn't think for a moment that when you disobey your parents, you're disobeying just your parents. No, when you disobey your parents, you're disobeying God, ultimately. And you shouldn't think that, well, I'll disobey my parents and get away with stuff, and then you're going to obey the police and obey the government. No. Um, how we relate to authority at home is dress rehearsal for how we're going to relate to authority outside of our homes. And parents, this should be a reminder to us that God has given us authority, and therefore it's not our authority, it's God's authority, it's a delegated authority, and therefore we need to steward it. Because we will be accountable to God for how we steward it. And I know how easy it is as a parent to sometimes forget that, to think that the authority is our authority that we're exercising. No, we're exercising God's authority. And therefore we need to do it in a way that represents Him and not us. Because when we forget that, the authority becomes sinful and looks more like us than it looks like God. Well, that's the, first, that's the preacher's first bit of counsel for those of us who want to live life well. He says, submit to authority. And in short, what he's calling us to do is to refrain from evil. Because ultimately, that's what, that's what authority in our lives is designed for. We need authority. Could you imagine for a moment if the cabinet resigns? All the members of parliament just resign. All the judges just quit. All the civil servants just go home. The police officers say, man, okay, I'm done. And they all go. Just imagine the country. No one obeys traffic lights. No one respects people's property. No one respects people's rights. We need authority because we're sinful and otherwise left to ourselves we devour one another. And so if we want to live life well, we need to have this appreciation for authority and for the way things are structured, and we need to obey authority. The second part to the preacher's counsel for living life well is fear God. He gives us this counsel in verses 10 through 13. Notice how he begins. In verse 10, he begins with a sobering statement. Then I saw the wicked buried. This is a sober reminder that even though the wicked live long, they will eventually die. But what's interesting about these wicked people that the preacher has in view is that they frequented the temple. They were praised in the city where they committed their wickedness. Now, what kind of people were these? I mean, they are wicked people, but they frequented the holy place. They were in and out of the holy place. And even though they were wicked people, they were, they were praised. But I can almost guarantee that these were not your run-of-the-mill Wicked people. These were not the rapists and the robbers and the murderers. And I say that because those kinds of people hardly enjoy going to church back and forth. 
They are busy doing other things. But instead, they were people who committed what we would call accepted wickedness. Wickedness that we tend to overlook. Wickedness that we countenance and we do not condemn. Wickedness like stealing land and charging unjust prices and cheating employees and not paying customs duties and financially raping the poor through gambling and other kinds of what we would call white-collar wickedness. These kinds of wicked people, instead of being condemned, they're often praised. And in our context of the Bahamas, sometimes they've been knighted by the queen. And the whole thing is a contradiction. And what the preacher says is, this makes no sense. It's not supposed to be this way. He says it's vanity. If it's vanity, and we've seen as we've worked through Ecclesiastes that vanity is... It's, it's a mist. It's, it's a vapor. It, it is something that just disappears. It's something you just can't wrap your hand around. You cannot grasp it. It says it makes no sense. How can that be? How could it be that people who are wicked are frequenting the house of God and they are praised by others? Verse 11 tells us how it can be. Verse 11 gives us the answer. Here's the answer. Because the sentence of evil, the sentence against evil, an evil deed, is not executed speedily. The heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. This is why people can be steeped in wickedness in an ongoing way, and they can be praised by others who observe them and perhaps even benefit from their wickedness. Now this is true on two levels. The first level is what we would call the divine level. God allows wicked people to continue in wickedness for a long time. And I think you'd agree. If, if you were God, if I was God, I wouldn't let wickedness go on this long. I shouldn't say that because I've heard it said, if you were God, you do the same thing that God does. So... If Cedric was God, I would do it different. And if you and your own self were yourself overlooking these things, you would stop it. See, God is not like us. He is unlike us. He allows wickedness to go on for a long time, not because he condones wickedness. He doesn't condone wickedness. But God allows it to go on for a long time because he is long-suffering. And he's not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But what happens is, we sinners count God's long-suffering as slackness. Or that we're special. Or God understands our situation. He understands our little unique thing, so he gives us an exception from the rule. And we confuse God's long-suffering. And so what we do is we set our hearts to continue in the direction that God's long-suffering is designed to bring us away from. And so because the punishment doesn't happen right away, we set our hearts to do evil. We and also those who observe us in what we're doing. And we're even praised. 
people even praise as they do so. And the second level that verse 11 is true is on a human level. For example, if we think about our own country, crime in our country is multifaceted. It is, it is, it is complex in many ways. But I will tell you that the main reason, the primary reason, the biggest reason for the crime epidemic in this country is found right in verse 11. And if we had a government or minister of national security who was convinced of this, who was persuaded that the reason that we have people who are set to do evil and who just wantonly do evil, wantonly snap out somebody's life, they do it because evil deeds are not punished in any speedy or in any predictable way. It takes too long to bring criminals to justice. And too many of our laws are just not being enforced. They're just there for decoration. And, and, and people who are evil, they recognize that pretty soon. It's kind of like the parent who threatens a child with punishment and never follows through. And so the hearts of criminals are filled with schemes. But here the counsel of the preacher in verse 12. He says, though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. And he goes on to verse 13. He says, but it will not go well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. What's the preacher's point? The preacher's point is not simply that the wicked will eventually die. That's not, his, that's not his point because the righteous will eventually die as well. The preacher is speaking about something beyond death. The preacher seems to be speaking about accountability before God after death. And what he's saying about the wicked is after death it will not go well. And about the righteous after death, it will go well. It will go well for them. And the difference is, the righteous feared, this is the preacher's words, he said they feared before God. On the other hand, the wicked did not fear before God. In his commentary on Ecclesiastes, Michael Eaton describes the fear of God as the awe and holy caution that arises from the realization of the greatness of God. That's what it means to fear before God. What it means to fear before God is to have this conscious awareness. You are aware of who God is, the realization of who He is, His greatness, His power, and the result is awe and a holy caution as you live life. You're living life mindful that you're dealing ultimately with this powerful God. And those who don't have that awareness, those who do not live with the awareness of the greatness of God are the ones who will set their hearts on evil, the ones who will do whatever they want to do because there's no reference for God. They don't fear before God. 
But brothers and sisters, when we realize the awesome greatness of God, we fear before Him. In other words, we live with this God consciousness, with awe and holy caution, when we realize His greatness. When we realize the greatness of God, we aren't able to live one way in public and another way in private because we are aware of the same awesome God who watches over all and who knows all, who is omnipresent, who is omniscient, who knows everything. And therefore, we don't play games with a private and a public life. We fear before Him. We fear in private. We fear in public. Friends, the preacher's point is that if we are going to live life well, we will fear before God. And see, this is all encompassing. This is all encompassing because it, it, it touches so many facets of life. It tempers so many facets of life. It will affect how we live life when we live with this fear before the Lord. And we do so mindful of the end. We do so mindful that this life is not it. After this life, we will all stand before God and we will give an account for our lives. The Bible says that we will answer to Him before whom all things are naked and nothing is hid. So there's accountability now and there will be accountability in the very end. And it will go well for those who fear before God. Do you fear God? Are you fearing before God? Are you living life fearing before God, aware of His awesome greatness, and therefore living with awe and holy caution in all that you do? I pray that you are. Because that is the reality that we all face. All of life is lived before the face of God. All of life is lived before the holy gaze of God. The holy awareness of God. Or are you living like the wicked? Are you living like the wicked people that the preacher observed in his time? Those who trafficked in the holy place, those who trafficked in the house of God while living in wickedness, being praised and being well spoken of and being well thought of, even as they lived in wickedness. Well, the preacher says there's going to come a day when they die, when the wicked die. He says, and in the end, it will not go well for them. And so, friend, if that's you this morning, if you're like these, the, the preacher observed, trafficking in the house of God, but living a resolutely wicked life, unaware and indifferent to the holy, awesome God who oversees all things in this life and in this world, then it will not go well with you. And I urge you this morning to turn from your sin and to turn to Christ, the only one who can transform our lives, to fear before God. 
It's the only reason we fear before God. We don't fear before God because we are in and of ourselves wise and holy. We fear before God that we've had an encounter with Jesus Christ and He opens our eyes to the truth. And He opens our eyes to things that we thought were good and right. And when our eyes are open, they grieve us. Because we now see as we ought to see. And I urge you, that's you this morning, and you're aware that you really are like the ones that the preacher observed who were living that way. I urge you to turn this morning to Jesus Christ. Otherwise, if you do not, you may live a long life. God's long-suffering may preserve you in this life. But in the end, it will not go well with you because you're not fearing before the Lord. And then third and finally, the preacher counsels us to enjoy life. He counsels us to enjoy life. He does that in verses 14 and 15. Notice in verse 14, the preacher again picks up this troubling occurrence that takes place in our broken world. He says there's a vanity that takes place on the earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I say this is also vanity. This weighed heavily on the preacher's heart because the preacher just touched this issue a few verses earlier in chapter 7 that we considered last week. But it's a recurring issue. It is a, it is a recurring issue not just for the preacher but for us as well. This is a reality that we as believers face. Even though we believe that in the end God will vindicate the righteous and condemn the wicked, we struggle in between because we observe and experience wicked people getting good outcomes in this life and righteous people getting bad outcomes that the wicked should get in this life. And like the preacher, we wrestle. And it's an ongoing theme that we will never fully resolve in this life. And it should caution us that when we see misfortune in the lives of people, that we should not automatically assume that, oh, they must have done something wrong. And when we also see evident blessings on the life of a person, we must not assume that they must be doing something right. And see, we we misread a lot of things by going on those surface kinds of experiences. But the preacher tells us, no, sometimes it's a contradiction. Sometimes it happens in reverse, in the opposite way that it should happen. The preacher doesn't say more than that. All he says is, you know what? This this is meaningless. I, I don't understand it. I can't wrap my mind around it. This is vanity. Two times in verse 14, he tells us that this occurrence is vanity. He opens by saying it's vanity, and he closes the verse by saying this is vanity. Meaning it, it, it is meaningless. You can't comprehend it. You don't understand why. Why is it that yesterday 
There were people grieving for loved ones, young people, husbands, wives who were in the prime of their lives and leaving loved ones, even as others who were more deserving from a human perspective of just being rid from the earth continued on in their wickedness. We don't understand. It's, it's like a vapor. You can't, can't wrap your hand around it. It's the kind of injustice that escapes us. The preacher does not offer us a philosophy to deal with that, but instead what he says to us is in verse 15. In response to it, he doesn't cause us to try to understand it. He simply says, you know what? I commend joy. For a man has no good thing under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. The preacher is reminding us that though life is hard and though life is broken and though things are contradictory and many times don't make sense, in the midst of it we can have joy and he commends us to have joy. In the face of all the perplexity, the preacher gives us this divine advice. He says to us, enjoy life. Because there's nothing better to do in this fallen world than to eat and drink and be joyful. Brothers and sisters, we live life well when we enjoy the good gifts that God has given to us. The gifts of food and drink and other gifts that make us joyful. Gifts like marriage and family and friends and the created world. These gifts will make life's contradictions and life's hardships easier to bear. And that's why the preacher says at the end of the verse, at the end of this section, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given to him under the sun. I think it's very helpful for us to notice that the preacher calls us to be joyful and to, and to enjoy life with the very basic things of life. food and drink. God gave them to us as gifts to be enjoyed and food is to be enjoyed. Drink is to be enjoyed. And yet sometimes in the midst of abundance of food, in the midst of abundance of drink, we complain. I mean, the preacher doesn't even talk about shelter. He doesn't even talk about clothing. And although those are, those are things as well that we um, need, we don't need them as much as we need food and, food and drink, but we have those as well, and sometimes we, we complain. And I think the point is, the point is that finding joy in this life is far simpler than we make it. Many times we're not happy unless we get all of these non-necessities, all of these what we can actually call in light of this luxuries of life. These extras that God in His kindness bestows upon us. But we forget that 
We don't need those things to have joy and to enjoy life. The preacher is in essence calling us to wise and joyful living by enjoying God's basic gifts that he gives to us. And how easy is it for us to overlook the essentials for joy and crave other things that will never bring us joy. I'll give an example. I guarantee, no doubt, there's somebody here this morning who's probably thinking, boy, I could use a vacation. I'd just love to go on vacation. And that'd be a wonderful thing, no doubt. But you know what? It will not bring you joy. It will not bring you joy. It will not bring you joy. The basic, the basic good gifts of God. But let me do this. Let me send you on vacation with no food. Put you in a room, you go on your vacation, and no food for you. No joy. No. Joy, the, the, the joy that God calls us to, these basic things in life. What's quite interesting is for the unbeliever, when they hear joy, they hear joyful, all those things, a, a, a totally different kind of reality comes to them. They have sinful pleasures in view. They have foolish pleasures in view. But the preacher gives us sound advice. Even though life is broken and hard, let us enjoy the life that God providentially allots to us. And I would say this. I, 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 I can say almost without fear of being contradiction, contradicted that all of us today are going to leave this place and we will at least have food and drink. Let us embrace the gifts of God let us entrust all those questions and the contradictions and the other things that we don't understand to God. And let us take the counsel of the preacher and let us enjoy life that God providentially allots to us. So how can we live life well? We live life well by obeying authority, by fearing God, and by enjoying life. I think a logical question must be, why does this escape most people? If it's, if it's that simple, doing these three things, obeying authority, and fearing God, and enjoying life, why does it escape most people? And I say that because many of us know Many people who are not living life well, they resent authority. They don't like being told what to do. They live their lives to please themselves and not God. And really, they are not enjoying life. They're missing out on life in many ways. So what's the problem? Well, the problem is they lack wisdom. That's the problem. The problem is they lack wisdom. They don't have wisdom. 
They don't have the wisdom that the preacher is commending. When he says, who is wise? It's the way the wise person lives. They don't have this wisdom. They have another kind of wisdom, a worldly wisdom, a wisdom that leads to sorrow and pain and heartache and heartbreak. But they don't have the wisdom that the preacher commends here. They need wisdom and we need this wisdom to live well. So what is wisdom? Is wisdom the ability to make good decisions? And I imagine to some degree it is. But it is so much more than that. Is it the kind of ideas that D. Paul Riley talks about every day and other motivational speakers like him? No, I don't think so because many people listen to him and their lives don't reflect the wisdom that we see being espoused in the book of Ecclesiastes. Is it found in some philosophy that we need to learn? No. Wisdom is not found in a philosophy, but wisdom is found in a person whom we need to know personally. And that person is Jesus Christ. And we come to know Jesus through obeying the gospel. We come to know Jesus through hearing, believing, and obeying the gospel. Listen to these words from the Apostle Paul as he was writing to the church at Corinth as he introduced his letter. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting at verse 17. Paul says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of his power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. And the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Someone's asking the same question that the preacher is asking in Ecclesiastes 8. Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made the foolish, made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. See, all that we talked about this morning, commending those, those three ways of living life well, in a vacuum, don't help us. They only help us as we come to know God through the person of Jesus Christ. The one who is the power of God to transform our lives, and the wisdom of God by which we are able to live life. And see, brothers and sisters, this is the difference. This is why so many 
live this life and they don't live it well. We live this life and live it well when we live by the wisdom of God that comes to us through the person of Jesus Christ. And so brothers and sisters, we need this wisdom to obey authority. This wisdom teaches us to fear God. This is the wisdom that we need if we're going to enjoy this sometimes difficult life, this sometimes confusing life. This is how we live it, and we live it well. Let's pray together.